My name is Laura, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Laura. I'm really happy to be here. I've been coming to these rooms since May 3rd, 1988. So that's almost 18 years. And I know many of you, and I've seen many of you for those years, or 12, or 10, or 8. And I've had strong connections with many of you, and um, and I'm glad to be here. And I'm honored to be here. And I woke up this morning obsessed. And I'm so grateful that I could say that to my friend Susan this morning when she said, How are you? I said, I woke up a little obsessed. She goes, Why should this day be different than any other day? <laughs> <laughs> so great. I'm like, Oh, right. <laughs> I have an obsessive mind. Um, I have an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind. Sometimes both aren't working, but that obsessive mind is working a lot of the time. And I had a great life. And I woke up. My husband was on one side. My little boy, who's seven, had come into the bedroom uh, at six. And he was on the other side. And then I got out of bed. And I went um, into the other room. And I did the first three steps on my knees. And said the third step prayer. And then I read uh, from two of the books. And then I meditated for five minutes. And I used—I didn't meditate way back when. I didn't know how. Then I really meditated for a while. I was up to 20 minutes, and I even went on a retreat, a silent meditation retreat. I was doing really well. And then the last few years, I, I don't meditate regularly, but I aspire to, and I've been back to five minutes. And that's one of the greatest things I've learned here, is baby steps. Before I came to Overeaters Anonymous, I didn't know anything about baby steps. I didn't know about one day at a time. I knew there was that TV show years ago, One Day at a Time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I didn't know you could think about your life or problems or issues one day at a time. I came to OA... Uh, after meeting a girl named Cynthia at a work-related event, we had dinner one night. She thought I was going to be able to help her with some business thing. And we ordered dinner at the Cheesecake Factory in Beverly Hills. And she said about some dishes having no flour on it or something like that. And I said, why are you asking for no flour? Well, I'm allergic to flour. And that allergic to flour. I'm allergic to fish, and I'm allergic to cats and dogs. But what do you mean allergic to flour? Well, it does something to me, and I sets up a craving. She says, and I, I haven't had sugar in five years, she told me. I said, you haven't had sugar in five years? That's not possible to not have a chocolate chip cookie for that long. She said, and that led her into talking about Overeaters Anonymous, and she said it's about steps, and I... I had heard of AA, but I didn't grow up with alcoholism. I'm not an alcoholic. I knew it helped people, but I had no idea how. She said the first step to me, admitted we were powerless over food and our lives had become unmanageable. 
there was something, well, and then she took the second and third, and she lost me when she started doing that. <laughs> God, what are you talking about? I believe that everything was up to me. Well, I really believe it was up to my dad. <laughs> he would take care of everything. I remember writing years ago at one point that I had the awakening once I came into OA and was working the steps and had gotten asked it, that my father was my God. No, food was my God. And my father was my God. And then to have those taken away, you know, in, in that perspective, allowed a real God, a real higher power to come in. But when she said, and when I heard the first half of the first step, I couldn't believe my ear. I thought, I'm allowed to be powerless over something? I'm allowed to be powerless over food? Because I knew what to eat. I knew what to eat to lose weight, and I knew I wanted to lose weight more than anything in the world, because I knew if I lost weight, I would be thin, and then I'd have a boyfriend, and I'd be happy. Um, and I'd feel good about myself. Well, a couple times I had gotten thin, and a couple times I didn't have a boyfriend. <laughs> I don't know if I had them at the same time. <laughs> I don't think so, actually. Uh, but when I got thin those couple times, it didn't last. I was so obsessed about my body and what to eat. I've been thinner in program. I've actually been about 20 pounds thinner when I was eating perfectly. And I don't uh, disparage that at all. You can do it great. It was great when I could do it perfectly. And I was bike riding about, I think it was probably about 50 miles a week. I loved it. It wasn't, I didn't think I was doing it to lose weight, but it did become kind of compulsive too. And what happened when I was that thin and exercising that much is I was very obsessed too. I didn't like that feeling. I was still obsessed about was I doing it just right? And if I veered a little and if I ate a little more, then I'd better, and I, could, I can identify a little with that um, exercise bulimic mentality where if I eat more, then I'll go work it off. And that is painful. I know now that is very painful because the obsession is terrible. I was in Yosemite with my family, uh, my husband and my son. And I have to tell you guys, even to say that still is it's like trying on something. I'm not that used to it. Um, with another family, with a seven-year-old, we were there for five days, about ten days ago. And I wasn't obsessed about food. Now, it would be nice if I could tell you after almost 18 years that that's the way it is most of the time. It's the way it is, I don't know how much of the time. It's the way it is a lot of the time, but I am obsessed some of the time too. I aspire, and I hope that maybe one day that will be totally gone like I hear from some people. <coughs> Uh, it was really great. I wasn't worried about getting my needs met. That's my problem. I am worried about getting my needs met. I am worried, uh, it says in the big book, fear of losing what we have or not getting what we want. It comes up again over and over and over. And it's very valid, validating and very freeing to read that 
and then to see that that is my disease. It's not reality. It may be reality. I mean, I, 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 I've lost things, and I've not gotten what I wanted. But the fear is worse than them losing it and not getting it. I mean, that's very profound. The fear of it is much worse than the reality of it. My dad died uh, almost eight years ago. That was a very big thing. I was very close to him. The reality... What can I say? It's, it's okay. Interesting. I have had an issue for uh, seven of those years with one of my brothers. And I'm, I, I, ta- I thought about this before I came here. And I thought, am I going to talk about this? Because I don't really plan what I'm going <coughs> to talk about. But I have found it very freeing in my experience here over the years, not necessarily to tell the most personal things at the podium, but sometimes to share about some things that are not pretty. Um, and I have been envious, and it's mainly envy regarding one of my brothers. And I've written about it. I've prayed about it. I pray for him. I hate it. Um, I've made amends. And I still have it. That's, it's very, it's very painful actually. Seven years. It doesn't control my life most of the time. (laughs) I'm laughing because it takes over sometimes. And it is painful. Um, and it's, it's, it's a core issue. I didn't have it before. See, I'm number one. I'm the oldest, and I'm number one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the hardest. I know best. I'm the oldest. Well, my dad's not here anymore. The dynamics have changed in that nuclear, in that very dysfunctional nuclear family. And I, and I have, you wouldn't believe how much self-knowledge I have. I am so smart about this. Uh, I know everything. Analysis, I know everything. I know why. I know I didn't get enough. I know my mother was depressed and she wasn't available emotionally. And I don't diminish any of that. Actually, sometimes when I talk about it, that actually uh, is healing. Because then it's like, oh, great, no wonder. Um, but the self-knowledge doesn't usually help me when it's in me and I feel it. And he's being himself. He's different than he used to be, and I really don't like that because I like the way the rules were before. Um, And it's painful because I see all this. So I get to be at step seven where I have to ask God to remove these defects because I'm not sure and I can't do it. And actually, I'll just, you know, it was suggested to me a couple months ago or so to reread Step 7, which I hadn't read in a while in the uh, 12 and 12. And it's about humility for anybody who, who doesn't know. And it's very profound. I mean, it's humbly asking to remove our shortcomings. And I spend the whole time just reading it to you because it's so rich, but I won't do that. But it does say here, for thousands of years we've been demanding more than our share of security, prestige, and romance. Never was there enough skippable. Never was there enough of what we thought we wanted. 
In all these strivings, so many of them well-intentioned, our crippling handicap had been lack of humility. We had lacked the perspective to see that character building and spiritual values had been first, and that material satisfactions were not the purpose of living. That's helpful to me. It's not about making more money, getting more money, getting, you know, having a child, getting married. I mean, those are things that are natural things to want in life for me. But if that is what I put my focus on, I lose spiritually. When I first came to Overeaters Anonymous and I heard uh, them say that do the 12 traditions, and I, I said to uh, the person next to me who had been coming for many years, I said, why did you do those? And because I was on a honeymoon early on. I thought, this is perfect. Everybody's wonderful in here. And uh, I now see why we need the 12 traditions. Working or living, trying, trying to live a spiritual life, for me, is not that easy. Um, there have been times where it is easy, has been easy, when I think back. Probably at the time it didn't feel easy, because nothing ever feels easy to me. Uh, but it's now, almost 18 years later, as you know, I, I have everything I ever wanted actually. I wanted more than anything to be married and have a child and to be um, thinner. Now, I would like to be about eight pounds thinner. That's the truth. That's, I feel better that, that way. Uh, so I don't have everything I want this minute. <laughs> <laughs> I just laugh because it's always something. <laughs> always something. And it's great to talk to people who could point that out and, you know, to, to be able to laugh at myself. Um, but when I, uh, once I've been engaged and I remember saying to, I remember the feeling, the, the realization that, oh my God, I still really, really, really need this program. I never left. I never really thought that I, I wouldn't need it. But to feel it in your gut when you go, oh dear, no matter what. <laughs> so, um, that's interesting. So I came to my first meeting. See, oh, I forgot to tell you. I'm a huge person. I mean, I have this disease. The way I ate was half gallons of ice cream, donuts, candy bars and sneaking and uh, I remember food being the answer really early I, I kind of believe I'm one of the ones who came out as a compulsive overeater I don't think a trauma happened I mean yeah I had a, a mother who was not emotionally available and who was depressed who knows but um, you know how much that has to do with it but it doesn't matter because I am one I am a compulsive overeater, and nothing will change that. One of my problems is sometimes in this busy, uh, out there life I have, I do start to forget. And I think I can eat some foods like a normal person. 
and I can't. And I keep trying some of them. And I can't. When I have, see, I get the most peace when, in, like I said, an alcoholic addict, you know, when I really accepted who I am. I really accepted that I'm an addict. Then the freedom comes. Now, I was, I mean, I do remember when I was two, I was two or two and a half, something like that, in Edmonton, Canada, with my grandmother, giving, and, and it's been, you know, full floor of the family, how much more I could eat at that <laughs> The bowl of noodles, cottage cheese, and syrup. I had a Jewish grandmother. And um, I can still taste it. I don't know if that's normal. <laughs> You know, it's interesting, you know, Passover, for those of us who are Jewish, and I had a Seder at my house last night, just a little one, and I loved Passover growing up. I liked the, the ritual, I liked the tradition, I liked, and years ago when I read about it and in abstinence, and I found, in, in, at least in my interpretation, part of it is, I mean, it's so, it so goes with this program. It's about freedom from bondage, you know, on a personal way, it's on the global, you know, the Jewish... Israelite level and then global but also personal. But they get to eat matzah. You know, matzah is intrinsic to this holiday. I can't eat matzah. I haven't had matzah in many years because I binge on matzah. We grew up with matzah all year round. I, my dad, I don't know, you know, whatever. He, I mean, we have matzah. Matzah with butter and jelly. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> I tried whole wheat matzah. <laughs> Oh no, it was good to me. <laughs> I love holy matzah. I, I just love matzah. So I haven't had matzah in, I don't know, how many years? Is it eight or nine or ten? So, you know, it's my, because it talks about, it's ironic, it talks about that, that, you know, giving up the bread is a way to sort of get closer to God and you can have matzah. Well, I have to give up the bread and the matzah to get closer to God. Sometimes it bugs me. Um, maybe that's why I was obsessed this morning. And I felt like, where was mine? How come I didn't get to? But And that happens sometimes. Uh, but I have found in my experience that it's, it's this basic for me, that abstinence is my ticket to God. And God is my ticket to abstinence. I can't have one without the other. And... Um, so I came to Overeaters Anonymous and I couldn't stop eating. And I, I focused on, I really couldn't stop eating the sugar and stuff. Uh, and I'd wake up, you know, the hangovers, the heaviness, the awfulness, the, this day is going to be the day, this is the day, I've eaten more than I ever need to. You know, in college, when I, when my girlfriends and I, freshman year, would smoke grass and then binge on, on brownies and everything else and candy bars, I would then go into the bathroom stall in the dorm and stuff a couple more candy bars down. You know, I, the, the freedom I got when I told that to my sponsor in my first inventory was huge because there's so much shame around that kind of eating. So I came to my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting on May 3rd, Tuesday night at 3rd and Flores. <coughs> Ida was one of the speakers and uh, she kept off 100 pounds, and I, I, 
heard people eat the way I ate, and I couldn't believe they talked about it. And the three men standing at the door were Matt and Greg and Henry. And I thought, oh, God, men are in here. <laughs> <laughs> and I was wearing my black stretch pants with the elastic, and, you know, my legs rubbed together. And, and I thought I'd try for one day not to eat sugar. Because that's what I heard, and that's what people said. Um, and then I tried it for another day. And I remember driving home from where I work, clutching the steering wheel, going, I'm powerless, I'm powerless, I'm powerless. I didn't believe in the second half of the first step because I didn't think my life was unmanageable because I wasn't in the gutter and I had friends and I had a job, I had a career. Uh, years later now that I have even more than that, I believe my life's unmanageable. <laughs> It's been proven to me. I prove it to myself. Um, and somehow, by making phone calls to these two women, Cynthia and Renee, back then, and going to meetings, and oh, they said, you go to uh, a couple more minutes. They said, you know, go to three or four meetings a week. Oh, my first sponsor. Catherine said, go to four meetings a week. Four meetings a week? I have a lot of And she said, you're taking commitment at the meeting. Why don't you set up chairs? Set up chairs? That means I have to get to that meeting an hour and a half early. And I have a life. And, I'm a and I am a responsible person. I'm not a flake. So, you know, I don't really need that kind of commitment to be responsible. But I did it anyway. And I believe in it. And it's, it's, I got a great foundation with those basics that I heard back then. Um, and I found that I did need to go to three meetings. No, I needed to go to five meetings because what happened was without the sugar and all that, all that stuff, the ice cream, the cookies, the donuts, the this and the that, I was getting these feelings and they were gigantic. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. And after three weeks, I had a spiritual awakening. I didn't believe in God because I believed in my dad, and um, and I was, I felt something that I'd never felt before, which was a peace and a oneness. And you know, as I'm rereading Step Nine now, because I'm starting to meditate again, I saw something that I forgot, and that's very validating. Um, I'll just read this to you before I stop. It says, not step nine, step 11, sorry. It says, there's a direct linkage among self-examination, meditation, and prayer. Taking separately, these practices can bring much relief and benefit. But when they are logically related and interwoven, the result is an unshakable foundation for life. Now and then, we may be granted a glimpse of that ultimate reality, which is God's kingdom. And we will be comforted and assured that our own destiny in that realm will be secure for so long as we try, however falteringly, to find and do the will of our own creator. Thanks.